Chapter 4 Billy Pilgrim could not sleep on his daughter's wedding night. He was 44. The wedding had taken place that afternoon in a gaily striped tent in Billy's backyard. The stripes were orange and black. Billy and his wife, Valencia, nestled like spoons in their big double bed. They were jiggled by magic fingers. Valencia didn't need to be jiggled to sleep. Valencia was snoring like a bandsaw. The poor woman didn't have ovaries or a uterus anymore. They had been removed by a surgeon, by one of Billy's partners in the new Holiday Inn. There was a full moon. Billy got out of bed in the moonlight. He felt spooky and luminous, felt as though he were wrapped in cool fur that was full of static electricity. He looked down at his bare feet. They were ivory and blue. Billy now shuffled down his upstairs hallway, knowing he was about to be kidnapped by a flying saucer. The hallway was zebra-striped with darkness and moonlight. The moonlight came into the hallway through doorways of the empty rooms of Billy's two children. Children no more. They were gone forever. Billy's wa Billy was guided by dread and the lack of dread. Dread? told him when to stop. Lack of it told him when to move again. He stopped. He went into his daughter's room. Her drawers were dumped. Her closet was empty. Heaped in the middle of her room were all the possessions she could not take on a honeymoon. She had a princess telephone extension all her own on her windowsill. Its tiny night light stared at Billy, and then it rang. Billy answered. There was a drunk on the other end. Billy could almost smell his breath, mustard gas and roses. It was a wrong number. Billy hung up. There was a soft drink table bottle on the windowsill. Its label boasted that it contained no nourishment whatsoever. Billy Pilgrim padded downstairs on his blue and ivory feet. He went into the kitchen, where the moonlight called his attention to a half bottle of champagne on the kitchen table, all that was left from the reception in the tent. Somebody had stoppered it again. Drink me, it seemed to say. So Billy uncorked it with his thumbs. It didn't make a pop. The champagne was dead. So it goes. Billy looked at the clock on the gas stove. He had an hour to kill before the saucer came. He went into the living room, swinging the bottle like a dinner bell, turned on the television. He came slightly unstuck in time, saw the late movie backwards, then forwards again. It was a movie about American bombers in the Second World War and the gallant men who flew them. 
Seen backwards by Billy, the story went like this. <clears throat> American planes full of holes and wounded men and corpses took off backwards from an airfield in London. Over France, a few German fighter planes flew at them backwards, sucked bullets and shell fragments from some of the planes and crewmen. They did the same for wrecked, uh, for wrecked American bombers on the ground, and those planes flew up backwards to join the formation. The formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their bomb bay, bomb bay doors, exerted a miraculous magnetism which shrunk the fires, gathered them into cylindrical steel containers and lifted the containers into the bellies of the planes. The containers were stored neatly in racks. The Germans below had miraculous devices of their own, which were long steel tubes. They used them to suck more fragments from the crewmen and planes. But there were still a few wounded Americans, though, and some of the bombers were in bad repair. Over France, though, German fighters came up again, made everything and everybody as good as new. When the bombers got back to their base, the steel cylinders were taken from the racks and shipped back to the United States of America, where factories were operating night and day, dismantling the cylinders, separating the dangerous contents into minerals. Touchingly, it was mainly women who did this work. The minerals were then shipped to specialists in remote areas. It was their business to put them into the ground, to hide them cleverly, so they would never hurt anybody ever again. The American flyers turned into their uniforms, became high school kids, and Hitler turned into a baby, Billy Pilgrim supposed. That wasn't in the movie. Billy was extrapolating. Everybody turned into a baby, and all humanity, without exception, conspired biologically to produce two perfect people named Adam and Eve, he supposed. Billy saw the war movies backwards, then forwards, and then it was time to go out into his backyard to meet the flying saucer. Out he went, his blue and ivory feet crushing the wet salad of the lawn. He stopped, took a swig of the dead champagne. It was like seven up. He would not raise his eyes to the sky, though he knew there was a flying saucer from Tralfamador up there. He would see it soon enough, inside and out, and he would see too where it came from soon enough, soon enough. Overhead, he heard the cry of what might have been a melodious owl. But it wasn't a melodious owl. It was 
a flying saucer from Trafamador, navigating in both space and time, therefore seeming to Billy Pilgrim to have come from nowhere all at once. Somewhere a big dog barks. The saucer was 100 feet in diameter with portholes around its rim. The light from the portholes was a pulsing purple. The only noise it made was the owl's song. It came down to hover over Billy and to enclose him in a cylinder of pulsing purple light. Now there was the sound of a seeming kiss as an airtight hatch in the bottom of the saucer was opened. Down snaked a ladder that was outlined in pretty lights like a ferris wheel. Billy's will was paralyzed by a zap gun aimed at him from one of the portholes. It became imperative that he take hold of the bottom rung of the sinuous ladder, which he did. The rung was electrified so that Billy's hands locked onto it hard. He was hauled into the airlock and machinery closed the bottom door. Only then did the ladder wound onto a reel into the airlock, let him go. Only then did Billy's brain start working again. There were two peepholes inside the airlock, with yellow eyes pressed to them. There was a speaker on the wall. The Tralfamadorians had no voice boxes. They communicated telepathically. They were able to talk to Billy by means of a computer and a sort of electric organ which made every earthling speech sound. Welcome aboard, Mr. Pilgrim, said the loudspeaker. Any questions? Billy licked his lips, thought a while, inquired at last. Why me? That is a very earthling question to ask, Mr. Pilgrim. Why you? Why us for that matter? Why anything? Because this moment simply is. Have you ever seen bugs trapped in amber? Yes. Billy, in fact, had a paperweight in his office, which is a blob of polished amber with three ladybugs embedded in it. Well, here we are, Mr. Pilgrim, trapped in the amber of this moment. There is no why. They introduced an anesthetic into Billy's atmosphere now, put him to sleep. They carried him to a cabin where he was trapped to a yellow barker lounger which they had stolen from a Sears Roebuck warehouse. The hold of the saucer was crammed with other stolen merchandise which would be used to furnish Billy's artificial habitat in a zoo on Tralfamador. The terrific acceleration of the saucer as it left Earth twisted Billy's slumbering body, distorted his face, dislodged him in time, sent him back to the war. When he regained consciousness, he wasn't on the flying saucer. He was in a boxcar, crossing Germany again. Some people were rising from the floor of the car. 
and others were lying down. Billy planned to lie down too. It would be lovely to sleep. It was black in the car and black outside the car, which seemed to be going about two miles an hour. The car never seemed to go any faster than that. It was a long time between clicks, between joints in the track. There would be a click and then a year would go by and then there would be another click. The train often stopped to let really important trains bowl and hurtle by. Another thing it did was stop on sidings near prisons, leaving a few cars there. It was creeping across all of Germany, growing shorter all the time. And Billy let himself down oh so gradually now, hanging onto the diagonal cross brace in the corner in order to make himself seem nearly weightless to those he was joining on the floor. He knew it. He knew it was important that he make himself nearly ghost-like when lying down. He had forgotten why, but a reminder soon came. Pilgrim, said a person he was about to nestle with, is that you? Billy didn't say anything, but nestled very politely, closed his eyes. God damn it, said the person. That is you, isn't it? He sat up and explored Billy rudely with his hands. It's you, all right. Get the hell out of here. Now Billy sat up too, wretched, close to tears. Get out of here. I want to sleep. Shut up, said somebody else. I'll shut up when Pilgrim gets away from here. So Billy stood up again, clung to the cross brace. Where can I sleep? he asked quietly. Not with me. Not with me, you son of a bitch, said somebody else. You yell. You kick. I do? You're goddamn right you do. And whimper. I do? Keep the hell away from here, pilgrim. And now there was an acrimonious madrigal with parts sung in all quarters of the car. Nearly everybody seemingly had an atrocity story of something Billy Pilgrim had done to him in his sleep. Everybody told Billy Pilgrim to keep the hell away. So Billy Pilgrim had to sleep standing up, or not sleep at all and food had stopped coming in through the ventilators and the days and nights were colder all the time. On the eighth day, the forty-year-old hobo said to Billy, This ain't bad. I can be comfortable anywhere. You can? said Billy. On the ninth day, the hobo died. So it goes. His last words were, You think this is bad? This ain't bad. There was something about death and the ninth day. There was a death on the ninth day in the car ahead of Billy's too. Roland Weary died of gangrene that had started in his mangled feet. So it goes. Weary, in his nearly continuous delirium, told again and again of the three musketeers acknowledged that he was dying, 
gave many messages to be delivered to his family in Pittsburgh. Above all, he wanted to be avenged, so he said again and again the name of the person who had killed him. Everyone on the car learned the lesson well. Who kills me? he would ask. And everybody knew the answer, which was this, Billy Pilgrim. Listen. On the tenth night, the peg was pulled out of the hasp on Billy's boxcar door, and the door was opened. Billy Pilgrim was lying at an angle on the corner brace, self-crucified, holding himself there with a blue and ivory claw hooked over the sill of the ventilator. Billy coughed when the door was opened, and when he coughed, he shit thin gruel. This was in accordance with the third law of motion, according to Sir Isaac Newton. This law tells us that for every action there is a reaction which is equal and opposite in direction. This can be useful in rocketry. The train had arrived <coughs> The train had arrived on a siding by a prison which was originally constructed as an extermination camp for Russian prisoners of war. The guards peeked inside Billy's car owlishly, cooled calmly. They had never dealt with Americans before but they had surely understood this general sort of threat. They knew that it was essentially a liquid which could be induced to flow slowly toward cooling and light. It was night time. The only light outside came from a single bulb which hung from a pole high and far away. All was quiet outside except for the guards cooled like doves, and the liquid began to flow. Gobs of it built up in the doorway, plopped to the ground. Billy was the next to last human being to reach the door. The hobo was last. The hobo could not flow, could not plop. He wasn't liquid anymore. He was stone. So it goes. Billy didn't want to drop him from the car to the ground. He sincerely believed that he would shatter like glass. So the guards helped him down, cooing still. They set him down facing the train. It was such a dinky train now. There was a locomotive, a tender and three little boxcars. The last boxcar was the railroad guards, heaven on wheels. Again. In that heaven on wheels, the table was set. Dinner was served. At the base of the pole from which the light bulb hung were three seeming haystacks. The Americans were wheedled and teased over to those three stacks which weren't hay after all. They were overcoats taken from prisoners who were dead. So it goes. It was the guard's firmly expressed wish that every American without an overcoat should take one. The coats were cemented together with ice, so the guards used their bayonets as ice picks, 
pricking free collars and hems and sleeves and so on, then peeling off coats and handing them out at random. The coats were stiff and dome-shaped, having conformed to their piles. The coat that Billy Pilgrim got had been crumpled and frozen in such a way and was so small that it appeared to be not a coat but a sort of large black three-cornered hat. There were gummy stains on it too, like crankcase drainings or old strawberry jam. There seems to be a dead, furry animal frozen to it. The animal was in fact the coat's fur collar. Billy glanced dully at the coats of his neighbors. Their coats all had brass buttons or tinsel or piping or numbers or stripes or eagles or moons or stars dangling from them. They were soldiers' coats. Billy was the only one who had a coat from a dead civilian. So it goes. And Billy and the rest were encouraged to shuffle around their dinky train and into the prison camp. There wasn't anything warm or lively to attract them, merely long, low, narrow sheds by thousands with no lights inside. Somewhere a dog barked. With the help of fear and echoes and winter silences, the dog had a voice like a big bronze gong. Billy and the rest were wooed through gate after gate, and Billy saw his first Russian. The man was all alone in the night, a rag bag with a round, flat face that glowed like a radium dial. Billy passed within a yard of him. There, were, there was barbed wire between them. The Russian did not wave or speak, but he looked directly into Billy's soul with sweet hopefulness, as though Billy might have good news for him. News he might be too stupid to understand, but good news all the same. Billy blacked out as he walked through gate after gate. He came to inn what he thought might be a building on Tralfamador. It was shrilly lit and lined with white tiles. It was an oath, though. It was a delousing station through which all new prisoners had to pass. Billy did as he was told. Took off his clothes. That was the first thing they told him to do on Tralfamador, too. A German measured Billy's upper right arm with his thumb and forefinger, asked a companion what sort of an army would send a weakling like that to the front. They looked at the other Americans' American bodies now, pointed out a lot more that were nearly as bad as Billy's. One of the best bodies belonged to the oldest American by far, a high school teacher from Indianapolis. His name was Edgar Derby. He hadn't been in Billy's boxcar. He had, he'd been in Roland Weary's car. He had cradled Weary's head while he died. So it goes. Derby was 44 years old. He was so old he had a son who was a Marine in the Pacific Theatre of War. 
Derby had pulled political wires to get into the army at his age. The subject he had taught in Indianapolis was contemporary problems in Western civilization. He also coached the tennis team and looked and took very good care of his body. Derby's son would survive the war. Derby wouldn't. That good body of his would be filled with holes by a firing squad in Dresden in 68 days. So it goes. The worst American body wasn't Billy's. The worst body belonged to a car thief from Cicero, Illinois. His name was Paul Lazaro. He was tiny, and not only were his bones and teeth rotten, but his skin was disgusting. Lazaro's polka dotted all over with dime-sized scars. He had had many plagues of boils. Lazaro, too, had been on Roland Weary's boxcar and had given his word of honour to Weary that he would find some way to make Billy Pilgrim pay for Weary's death. He was looking around now, wondering which naked human was Billy. The naked Americans took their places under many shower heads along a white-tiled wall. There were no faucets that they could control. They could only wait for whatever was coming. Their penises were shriveled and their balls were retracted. Reproduction was not the main business of the evening. An unseen hand turned a master wall valve. Out of the shower heads gushed scalding rain. The rain was a blowtorch that did not warm. It jazzed and jangled Billy's skin without thawing the ice in the marrow of his long bones. The American's clothes were, meanwhile, passing through poison gas. Body lice and bacteria and fleas were dying by the billions. So it goes. And Billy zoomed back in time to his infancy. He was a baby who had just been bathed by his mother. Now his mother wrapped him in a towel, carried him into a rosy room that was filled with sunshine. She unwrapped him, laid him on the tickling towel, powdered him between his legs, joked with him, patted his little jelly belly. Her palm on his little jelly belly made potching sounds. Billy gurgled and cooed. And then... Billy was a middle-aged optometrist again, playing hacker's golf this time on a blazing summer Sunday morning. Billy never went to church anymore. He was hacking with three other optometrists. Billy was on the green in seven strokes and it was his turn to putt. It was an eight-foot putt and he made it. He bent over to take the ball out of the cup and the sun went behind a cloud. Billy was momentarily dizzy. When he recovered, he wasn't on the golf course anymore. He was trapped to a yellow contour chair in a white chamber aboard a flying saucer, which is bound for Tralfamador. Where am I? said Billy Pilgrim. Trapped in another blob of amber, Mr. Pilgrim. 
We are where we have to be just now, 300 million miles from Earth, bound for a time warp which will get us to travel the door in hours rather than centuries. How, how did I get here? It would take another Earthling to explain it to you. Earthlings are the great explainers, explaining why this event is structured as it is, telling how other events may be achieved or avoided. I am a Travamadorian, seeing all time as you might see a stretch of the Rocky Mountains. All time is all time. It does not change. It does not lend itself to warnings or explanations. It simply is. Take it moment by moment, and you will find that we are all, as I've said before, bugs in amber. You sound to me as though you don't believe in free will, said Billy Pilgrim. If I hadn't spent so much time studying earthlings, said the Tralfamadorian, I wouldn't have any idea what was meant by free will. I've visited 31 inhabited planets in the universe, and I have studied reports on 100 more. Only on Earth is there any talk of free will. That was the end of chapter 4. Chapter 5 Billy Pilgrim says that the universe does not look like a lot of bright little dots to the creatures from Tralfamador. The creatures can see where each star has been and where it is going so that the heavens are filled with the rarefied, luminous spaghetti. And Tralfamadorans don't see human beings as two-legged creatures. They see them as great millipedes, with babies' legs at one end and old people's legs at the other, says Billy Pilgrim. Billy asked for something to read on the trip to Tralfamador. His captors had five million earthling books on microfilm, but no way to project them in Billy's cabin. They had only one actual book in English which would be placed in a Tralfamadorian museum. It was A Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline Suzanne. Billy read it, thought it was pretty good in spots. The people in it certainly had their ups and downs, ups and downs. But Billy didn't want to read about the same ups and downs over and over again. He asked if there wasn't, please, some other reading matter around. Only Tralfamadorian novels, which I'm afraid you couldn't begin to understand, said the speaker on the wall. Let me look at one anyway. So they sent him in several. They were little things. A dozen of them might have had the bulk of the Valley of the Dolls, with all its ups and downs, ups and downs. Billy couldn't read Tralvamadorian, of course, but he could at least see how the books were laid out, in brief clumps of symbols separated by stars. Billy commented, Billy 
commented that the clumps might be telegrams. Exactly, said the voice. They are telegrams? There are no telegrams on Travamador, but you're right. Each clump of symbols is a brief, urgent message describing a situation, a scene. We Travamadorans read them all at once, not one after the other. There isn't any particular relationship between all the messages, except that the author has chosen them carefully so that when seen all at once, they produce an image of life that is beautiful and surprising and deep. There is no beginning, no middle, no end, no suspense, no moral, no causes, no effects. What we love in our books are the depths of many marvellous moments, seen all at one time. Moments after that, the saucer entered a time warp, and Billy was flung back into his childhood. He was twelve years old, quaking as he stood with his mother and father on bright angel point at the rim of the Grand Canyon. The little human family was staring at the floor of the canyon, one mile straight down. Well, said Billy's father, manfully kicking a pebble into space. There it is. They had come to this famous place by automobile. They had had seven blowouts on the way. It was worth the trip, said Billy's mother raptly. Oh God, was it ever worth it? Billy hated the canyon. He was sure that he was going to fall in. His mother touched him and he wet his pants. There were other tourists looking down into the canyon too, and a ranger was there to answer questions. A Frenchman who had come all the way from France asked the ranger in broken English if many people committed suicide by jumping in it. Yes, sir, said the ranger, about three folks a year, so it goes. And Billy took a very short trip through time, made a peewee jump of only ten days, so he was still twelve, still touring the west with his family. Now they were down in Carlsbad Caverns, and Billy was praying to God to get him out of there before the ceiling fell in. A ranger was explaining that the caverns had been discovered by a cowboy, who saw a huge cloud of bats come out of a hole in the ground. And then he said that he was going to turn out all the lights and that it was it would probably be the first time in the lives of most people there that they had ever been in darkness that was total. Out went the lights. Billy didn't even know whether he was still alive or not. And then something ghostly floated in air to his left. It had numbers on it. His father had taken out his pocket watch. The watch had a radium dial. Billy went from total dark to total light, found himself back in the war, back in the delousing station again. The shower was over. An unseen hand had turned the water off. When Billy got his clothes back, 
there weren't any cleaner, but all the little animals that had been living in them were dead. So it goes. And his new overcoat was thawed out and limp now. It was much too small for Billy. It had a fur collar and a lining of crimson silk, and it had apparently made been made for an impresario about as big as an organ grinder's monkey. It was full of bullet holes. Billy Pilgrim dressed himself. He put on the little overcoat too. It split up the back and at the shoulders the sleeves came entirely free. So the coat became a fur-collared vest. It was meant to flare at its owner's waist, but the flaring took place at Billy's armpits. The Germans found him to be one of the most screamingly funny things they had seen in all of World War II. They laughed and laughed. And the Germans told everybody else to form in ranks of five with Billy as their pivot. Then out of the doors went the parade and through gate after gate again. There were more starving Russians with faces like radium dials. The Americans were livelier than before. The jazzing with hot water had cheered them up and they came to a shed where a corporal with only one arm and one eye wrote the name and serial number of each prisoner in a big red ledger. Everybody was legally alive now. Before they got their names and numbers in that book, they were missing in action and probably dead. So it goes. As the Americans were waiting to move on, an altercation broke out in their rearmost rank. An American had muttered something which a guard did not like. The guard knew English and he hauled the American out of ranks, knocked him down. The American was astonished. He stood up shakily, spitting blood. He had two teeth knocked out. He had meant no harm by what he had said. Evidently, he had no idea that the guard would hear and understand. Why me? he asked the guard. The guard shoved him back into the ranks. Why you? Why anybody? he said. When Billy Pilgrim's name was inscribed in the ledger of the prison camp, he was given a number two, and an iron dog tag in which that number was stamped. A slave labourer from Poland had done the stamping. He was dead now, so it goes. Billy was told to hang the tag around his neck along with his American dog tags, which he did. The tag was like a salt cracker, perforated down its middle so that a strong man could snap it in two with his bare hands. In case Billy died, which he didn't, half of the tag would mark his body and half would mark his grave. After poor Edgar Derby, the high school teacher, was shot in Dresden later on, a doctor pronounced him dead and snapped his dog tag in two. So it goes. Properly enrolled and tagged, the Americans were led through gate after gate again. In two days' time now, their families would learn from the International Red Cross that they were alive. Next to Billy was little Paul Lazaro, 
who had promised to avenge Roland Weary. Lazaro wasn't thinking about vengeance. He was thinking about his terrible belly ache. His stomach had shrunk to the size of a walnut. That dry, shriveled pouch was as sore as a boil. Next to Lazaro was poor, doomed old Edgar Derby with his American and German dogs displayed like a necklace on the outside of his clothes. He had expected to become a captain, a company commander, because of his wisdom and his age. Now here he was on the Czechoslovakian border at midnight. Halt, said a guard. The Americans halted. They stood there quietly in the cold. The sheds they were among were outwardly like thousands of other sheds they had passed. There was this difference, though. The sheds had tin chimneys, and out of the chimneys whirled constellations of sparks. A guard knocked on a door. The door was flung open from inside. Lights leaped out through the door. Escapes from prison at 186,000 miles per second. Out marched 50 middle-aged Englishmen. They were singing. Hail, hail, the gang's all here, from the pirates of Penzance. These lusty, ruddy vocalists were among the first English-speaking prisoners to be taken in the Second World War. Now they were singing to nearly the last. They had not seen a woman or a child for four years or more. They hadn't seen any birds either. Not even sparrows would come into the camp. The Englishmen were officers. Each of them had attempted to escape from another prison at least once. Now they were here, dead center in a sea of dying Russians. They could tunnel all they pleased. They would inevitably surface within a rectangle of barbed wire, would find themselves greeted listlessly by dying Russians who spoke no English who had no food or useful information or escape plans of their own. They could scheme all they pleased to hide aboard a vehicle or steal one, but no vehicle ever came into their compound. They could feign illness if they liked, but that wouldn't earn them a trip anywhere either. The only hospital in the camp was a six-bed affair in the British compound itself. The Englishmen were clean and enthusiastic and decent and strong. They sang boomingly well. They had been singing together every night for years. The Englishmen had also been lifting weights and chinning themselves for years. Their bellies were like washboards. The muscles of their calves and upper arms were like cannonballs. They were all masters of checkers and chests and bridge and cribbage and dominoes and anagrams and charades and ping-pong and billiards as well. They were among the wealthiest people in Europe in terms of food. A clerical error early in the war, when food was still getting through to prisoners, had caused the Red Cross to ship them 500 parcels every month instead of 50. The Englishmen had hoarded these so cunningly that now, as the war was ending, they had 
three tons of sugar, one ton of coffee, 1100 pounds of chocolate, 700 pounds of tobacco, 1700 pounds of tea, two tons of flour, one ton of canned beef, 1200 pounds of canned butter, 1600 pounds of canned cheese, 800 pounds of powdered milk, and two tons of orange marmalade. <clears throat> they kept all this in a room without windows. They had rat-proofed it by lining it with flattened tin cans. They were adored by the Germans who thought they were exactly what Englishmen ought to be. They made war look stylish and reasonable and fun. So the Germans let them have four sheds, though one shed would have held them all. And in exchange for coffee or chocolate or tobacco, the Germans gave them paint and lumber and nails and cloth for fixing things up. The Englishmen had known for twelve hours that American guests were on their way. They had never had guests before, and they went to work like darling elves, sweeping, mopping, cooking, baking, making mattresses of straw and burlap bags, setting tables, putting party favors at each place. Now they were singing their welcome to their guests in the winter night. Their clothes were aromatic with the feast they had been preparing. They were dressed half for battle, half for tennis or croquet. They were so elated by their own hospitality and by all the goodies waiting inside that they did not take a good look at their guests while they sang. And they imagined that they were singing to fellow officers fresh from the fray. They wrestled the Americans toward the shed door affectionately filling the night with manly blather and brotherly jokes. They called them Yank, told them good show, promised them that, Jerry was on the run, and so on. Billy Pilgrim wondered dimly who Jerry was. Now he was indoors, next to an iron cook stove that was glowing cherry red. Dozens of teapots were boiling there. Some of them had whistles, and there was a witch's cauldron full of golden soup. The soup was thick. Bubbles surfaced it with lethargical majesty as Billy Pilgrim stared. There were long tables set for a banquet. At each place was a bowl made from a can that had once contained powdered milk. A smaller can was a cup, a taller, more slender can was a tumbler. Each tumbler was filled with, a, with warm milk. At each place was a safety razor, a washcloth, a package of razor blades, a chocolate bar, two cigars, a bar of soap, ten cigarettes, a book of matches, a pencil and a candle. Only the candles and the soap were of German origin. They had a ghostly, opalescent similarity. 
The British had no way of knowing it, but the candles and the soap were made from the fat of rendered Jews and gypsies and fairies and communists and other enemies of the state. So it goes. The banquet hall was illuminated by candlelight. There were heaps of fresh-baked white bread on the tables, gobs of butter, pots of marmalade. There were platters of sliced beef from cans. Soup and scrambled eggs and hot marmalade pie were yet to come. And at the far end of the shed, Billy saw pink arches with azure draperies hanging between them, and an enormous clock and two golden thrones in a bucket and a mop. It was in this setting that the evening's entertainment would take place, a musical version of Cinderella, the most popular story ever told. Billy Pilgrim was on fire, having stood too close to the glowing stove. The hem of his little coat was burning. It was a quiet, patient sort of fire, like the burning of punk. Billy wondered if there was a telephone somewhere. He wanted to call his mother to tell her he was alive and well. There was silence now, as the Englishmen looked in astonishment at the frowsy creatures they had so lustily walled inside. One of the Englishmen saw that Billy was on fire. You're on fire, lad, he said, and he got Billy away from the stove and beat out the sparks with his hands. When Billy made no comment on this, the Englishman asked him, Can you talk? Can you hear? Billy nodded. The Englishman touched him exploratorily, here and there, filled with pity. My God, what have they done to you, lad? This isn't a man, this is a broken kite. Are you really an American? said the Englishman. Yes, said Billy. And your rank? Private. What became of your boots, lad? I don't remember. Is that called a joke? Sir, where did you get such a thing? Billy had to think hard about that. They gave it to me, he said at last. Jerry gave it to you? Oh, I lost my page. Okay, Jerry gave it to you? Who? The Germans gave it to you? Yes. Billy didn't like the questions. They were fatiguing. Oh, yank, 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 said the Englishman. That coach was an insult. Sir, it was a deliberate attempt to humiliate you. You mustn't let Jerry do things like that. Billy Pilgrim swooned. Billy came to on a chair facing the stage. He had somehow eaten and now he was watching Cinderella. Some part of him had evidently been enjoying the performance for quite a while. Billy was laughing hard. The women in the play were really men, of course. The clock had just struck midnight and Cinderella was lamenting. Goodness me, the clock has struck. Alec Day and fuck my luck. Billy found the couplet so comical that he not only laughed, he shrieked. 
He went on shrieking until he was carried out of the shed and into another where the hospital was. It was a six-bed hospital. There weren't any other patients in there. Billy was put to bed and tied down and given a shot of morphine. Another American volunteered to watch over him. This volunteer was Edgar Derby, the high school teacher who was be shot to death in Dresden. So it goes. Derby sat there on a three-legged stool. He was given a book to read. The book was The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane. Stephen Crane. Derby had read it before. Now he read it again while Billy Pilgrim entered a morphine paradise. Under morphine, Billy had a dream of giraffes in a garden. The giraffes were following gravel paths were pausing to munch sugar pears from treetops. Billy was a giraffe too. He ate a pear. It was a hard one. It fought back against his grinding teeth. It snapped in juicy protest. The giraffes accepted Billy as one of their own, as a harmless creature as preposterously specialized as themselves. Two approached him from opposite sides, leaned against him. They had long, muscular upper lips which they could shape like the bells of bugles. They kissed him with these. They were female giraffes, cream and lemon yellow. They had horns like doorknobs. The knobs were covered with velvet. Why? Night came to the garden of the giraffes, and Billy Pilgrim slept without dreaming for a while, and then he travelled in time. He woke up with his head under a blanket in a ward for non-violent mental patients in a veterans' hospital near Lake Placid, New York. It was springtime in 1948, three years after the end of the war. Billy uncovered his head. The windows of the ward were open. Birds were twittering outside. Pootweed, one asked him. The sun was high. There were 29 other patients assigned to the ward, but they were all outdoors now, enjoying the day. They were free to come and go as they pleased, to go home even if they liked, and so was Billy Pilgrim. They had come here voluntarily alarmed by the outside world. Billy had committed himself in the middle of his final year at the Ilium School of Optometry. Nobody else suspected that he was going crazy. Everybody else thought he looked fine and was acting fine. Now he was in the hospital. The doctors agreed he was going crazy. That didn't think it had anything to do with the war. They were sure Billy was going to pieces because his father had thrown him into the deep end of the YMCA swimming pool when he was a little boy and had taken and had then taken him to the rim of the Grand Canyon. The man assigned to the bed next to Billy's was a former infantry captain named Elliot Rosewater. Rosewater was sick and tired of being drunk all the time. It was Rosewater who introduced Billy to science fiction and in particular to the writings of Kilgore Trout. 
Rosewater had a tremendous collection of science fiction paperbacks under his bed. He had brought them to the hospital in a steamer trunk. Those beloved frumpish books gave off a smell that permeated the ward like flannel pyjamas that hadn't been changed for a month, or like Irish stew. Kilgore Trout became Billy's favourite living author, and science fiction became the only sort of tales he could read. Rosewater was twice as smart as Billy, but he and Billy were dealing with similar crises in similar ways. They had both found life meaningless, partly because of what they had seen in war. Rosewater, for instance, had shot a 14-year-old fireman, mistaking him for a German soldier. So it goes. And Billy had seen the greatest massacre in European history, which was the firebombing of Dresden. So it goes. So they were trying to reinvent themselves in their universe. Science fiction was a big help. Rosewater said an interesting thing to Billy one time about a book that wasn't science fiction. He said that everything there was to know about life was in the brothers Karmasov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. But that, w- that isn't enough anymore, said Rosewater. Another time, Billy heard Rosewater say to a psychiatrist, I think you guys are going to have to come out with a lot of wonderful new lies, or people just aren't going to want to go on living. There was a still life on Billy's bedside table. Two pills, an ashtray with three lipstick-stained cigarettes in it, one cigarette still burning and a glass of water. The water was dead, so it goes. Air was trying to get out of that dead water. Bubbles were clinging to the walls of the glass, too weak to climb out. The cigarettes belonged to Billy's chain-smoking mother. She had sought the lady's room, which was off the ward, for wax and waves and spas and wafts who had gone bananas. She would be back at any moment now. Billy covered his head with his blanket again. He always covered his head when his mother came to see him in the mental ward. Always got much sicker until she went away. It wasn't that she was ugly or had bad breath or a bad personality. She was a perfectly nice standard issue, brown-haired, white woman with a high school education. She upset Billy simply by being his mother. She made him feel embarrassed and ungraceful and weak because she had gone to so much trouble to give him life and to keep that life going. And Billy didn't really like life at all. Billy heard Elliot Rosewater come in and lie down. Rosewater's bed springs talked a lot about that. Rosewater was a big man but not very powerful. He looked as though he might be made out of nose putty. And then Billy's mother came back from the ladies' room, sat down on a chair between Billy's and Rosewater's bed. Rosewater greeted her with melodious warmth, asked about how she was today. She seemed, he seemed delighted to hear that she was fine. He was experimenting with being ardently sympathetic with everybody he met.
He thought that might make the world a slightly more pleasant place to live in. He called Billy's mother dear. He was experimenting with calling everybody dear. Someday, she promised Rosewater, I'm going to come in here and Billy's going to uncover his head. And do you know what he's going to say? What's he going to say, dear? He's going to say, hello, mom. And he's going to smile. He's going to say, gee, it's good to see you, mom. How have you been? Today could be the day. Every night I pray. That's a good thing to do. People would be surprised if they knew how much in this waltz was due to prayers. You never said a true word, dear. Does your mother come to see you often? My mother is dead, said Rosewater, so it goes. I'm sorry. At least she has had a happy life as long as it lasted. That's a consolation anyway. Yes. Billy's father is dead, you know, said Billy's mother. So it goes, a boy needs a father. And on and on it went, that duet between the dumb, praying lady and the big hollow man was so full of loving echoes. He was at the top of his class when this happened, said Billy's mother. Maybe he was working too hard, said Rosewater. He held a book he wanted to read, but he was too much polite. He was much too polite to read and talk, too. Easy was to give Billy's mother satisfactory answers. The book was Maniacs in the Fourth Dimension by Kilgore Trout. It was about people whose mental diseases couldn't be treated because the causes of the diseases were all in the fourth dimension and three-dimensional earthling doctors couldn't see those causes at all or even imagine them. One thing Trout said that Rosewater liked very much was that there really were vampires and werewolves and goblins and angels and so on but that they were in the fourth dimension. So was Billy, William Blake, Rosewater's favourite poet. According to Trout, so were heaven and hell. He's engaged to a very rich girl, said Billy's mother. That's good, said Rosewater. Money can be a great comfort sometimes. It really can, of course it can. It isn't much fun if you have to pinch every penny till it screams. It's nice to have a little breathing room. Her father owns the optometry school where Billy was going. He also owns six offices around our part of the state. He flies his own plane and has a summer place up on Lake George. That's a beautiful lake. Billy fell asleep under his blanket. When he woke up again, he was tied to the bed in the hospital back in prison. He opened one eye, saw poor old Edgar Derby, reading the red badge of courage by candlelight. Billy closed that one eye, saw in his memory of the future poor old Edgar Derby in front of a firing squad in the ruins of Dresden. There were only four men in that squad. Billy had heard that one man in each firing squad was customarily given a rifle loaded with blank cartridge. Billy didn't think there would be a blank cartridge issued in a squad that small, in a war that old. 
Now the head Englishman came into the hospital to check on Billy. He was an infantry colonel captured at Dunkirk. It was he who had given Billy morphine. There wasn't a real doctor in the compound, so the doctoring was up to him. How's the patient? he asked Derby, dead to the world. But not actually dead. No. How nice to feel nothing and still get full credit for being alive. Derby now came to lugubrious attention. No, no, please, as you were. There's only two men for each officer, not all the men sick. I think we can do without the usual pageantry between officers and men. Derby remained standing. You seem older than the rest, said the colonel. Derby told him he was forty-five, but was two years older than the colonel. Which was two years older than the colonel. The colonel said that the other Americans had all shaves now, that Billy and Derby were the only two still with beards. And he said, you know, we've got to imagine the war here, and we have imagined that it was being fought by aging men like ourselves. We had forgotten that wars were fought by babies. When I saw those freshly shaved faces, it was a shock. My God, my God, I said to myself, myself, it's a children's crusade. The colonel asked old Derby how he had been captured, and Derby told the tale of being in a clump of trees with about a hundred other frightened soldiers. The battle had been going on for five days. The hundred had been driven into the trees by tanks. Derby described the incredible artificial weather that earthlings sometimes create for other earthlings when they don't want those other earthlings to inhabit earth anymore. Shells were bursting in the treetops with terrific bangs, he said, showering down knives and needles and razor blades. Little lumps of lead in copper jackets were crisscrossing the woods under the shell bursts, zipping along much faster than sound. A lot of people were being wounded or killed, so it goes. Then the shelling stopped and a hidden German with a loudspeaker told the Americans to put their weapons down and come out of the woods with their hands on the top of their heads or the shelling would start again. It wouldn't stop until everybody there was dead. So the Americans put their weapons down and they came out of the woods with their hands on top of their heads because they wanted to go on living if they possibly could. Billy travelled in time back to the veterans' hospital again. The blanket was over his head. It was quiet outside the blanket. Is my mother gone? said Billy. Yes. Billy peeped out from under his blanket. His fiancée was out there now, sitting on the visitor's chair. Her name was Valencia Merble. Valencia was the daughter of the owner of the Ilium School of Optometry. She was rich. She was as big as a house because she couldn't stop eating. She was eating now. She was eating a three musketeers candy bar. She was wearing trifocal lenses in harlequin frames and the frames were trimmed with rhinestones. Oh, I lost the page again. 
Okay. The glitter of the rhinestones was answered by the glitter of the diamond in her engagement ring. The diamond was insured for $1,800. Billy had found that diamond in Germany. It was booty of the war. Billy didn't want to marry ugly Valencia. She was one of the symptoms of his disease. He knew he was going crazy. He knew he was going crazy when he heard himself proposing marriage to her. When he begged her to take the diamond ring and be his companion for his life. For life. Billy said hello to her and she asked him if he wanted some candy and he said no thanks. She asked him how he was and he said much better thanks. She said that everybody at the optometry school was sorry he was sick and hoped he would be well soon and Billy said when you see them tell him hello. She promised she would. She asked him if there was anything she could bring him from the outside and he said no. I have just about everything I want. What about books? said Valencia. I am right next to one of the biggest private libraries in the world, said Billy, meaning Elliot Rosewater's collection of science fiction. Rosewater on the next bed reading and Billy drew him into the conversation, asking him what he was reading this time. So Rosewater told him it was the Gospel from Outer Space by Kilgore Trout. It was about a visitor from outer space, shaped very much like a trout from a Dorian, by the way. The visitor from outer space made a serious study of Christianity to learn if he could why Christians found it so easy to be cruel. He concluded that at least he concluded that at least part of the trouble was slipshod storytelling in the New Testament. He supposed that the intent of the Gospels was to teach people, among other things, to be merciful, even to the lowest of the low. But the Gospels actually taught this. Before you kill somebody, make absolutely sure he isn't well connected. So it goes. The flaw in the Christ story, said the visitor from outer space, was that Christ, who didn't look like much, was actually the son of the most powerful being in the universe. Readers understood that. So when they came to the crucifixion, they naturally thought, and Rosewater read out loud again. Oh boy, they sure picked the wrong guy to lynch that time. And that thought had a brother. There are right people to lynch. Who? People not well connected. So it goes. The visitor from outer space made a gift to earth of a new gospel. In it, Jesus really was a nobody and a pain in the neck to a lot of people with better connections than he had. He still got to say all the lovely and puzzling things he said in the other Gospels. 
So the people amused themselves one day by nailing him to a cross and planting the cross in the ground. There couldn't possibly be any repercussions, the lynchers thought. Repercussions, the lynchers thought. The readers would have to think that too, since the new gospel hammered home again and again what a nobody Jesus was. And then, just before the nobody died, the heavens opened up, and there was thunder and lightning. The voice of God came crushing down. He told the people that he was adopting the bum as his son, giving him the full powers and privileges of the son of the creator of the universe throughout all eternity. God said this. From this moment on, he will punish horribly anybody who torments a bum who has no connections. Billy's fiancée had finished her Three Musketeers candy bar. Now she was eating a Milky Way. Forget books, said Rosewater, throwing that particular book under his bed. The hell with them. That sounded like an interesting one, said Valencia. Jesus, if Kilgore Trout could only write, Rosewater exclaimed. He had a point. Kilgore Trout's unpopularity was deserved. His prose was frightful. Only his ideas were good. I don't think Trout has ever been out of the country, Rosewater went on. My God, he writes about earthlings all the time, and they're all Americans. Practically nobody on earth is an American. Where does he live? Valencia asked. Nobody knows, Rosewater replied. I'm the only person who's ever heard of him, as far as I can tell. No two books have the same publisher, and every time I write him in care of a publisher, the letter comes back because the publisher has failed. He changed the subject now, congratulated Valencia on her engagement ring. Thank you, she said, and held it out so Rosewater could get a close look. Billy got that diamond in the war. That's the attractive thing about war, said Rosewater. Absolutely everybody gets a little something. With regard to the whereabouts of Kilgore Trout, he actually lived in Ilium, Billy's hometown, friendless and despised. Billy would meet him by and by. Billy, said Valencia Merble, hmm? You want to talk about our silver pattern? Sure. I've got it narrowed down pretty much to either Royal Danish or Rambler Rose. Rambler Rose, said Billy. It isn't something we should rush into, she said. I mean, whatever we decide on, that's what we're going to have to live with the rest of our lives. Billy studied the pictures. Royal Danish, he said at last. Colonial moonlight is nice too. Yes, it is, said Billy Pilgrim. And Billy travelled in time to the zoo on Tralfamador. He was 44 years old, on display under a geodesic dome. He was reclining on the lounge chair, which had been his cradle during his trip throughout space. He was naked. The Tralfamadorans were interested in his body, all of it. There were thousands of them outside, holding up their little hands so that their eyes could see him.
Billy had been on trial from the door for six earthling months now. He was used to the crowd. Escape was out of question. The atmosphere outside the dome was cyanide. The earth was 446-120-000-000-000-000 miles away. Billy was displayed there in the zoo in a simulated earthling habitat. Most of the furnishings had been stolen from the Sears Roebuck warehouse in Iowa City, Iowa. There was a color television set and a couch that could be converted into a bed. There were end tables with lamps and ashtrays in them by the couch. There was a home bar and two stools. There was a little pool table. There was wall-to-wall carpeting in federal gold. Except in the kitchen and bathroom areas and over the iron manhole cover in the center of the floor. There were magazines arranged in a fan on the coffee table in front of the couch. There was a stereophonic phonograph. The phonograph worked. The television didn't. There was a picture of one cowboy killing another one pasted to the television tube. So it goes. There were no walls in the dome, no place for Billy to hide. The mint green bathroom fixtures were right out in the open. Billy got off his lounge chair now, went into the bathroom and took a leak. The crowd went wild. Billy brushed his teeth a trial from a door, put in his partial denture and went into his kitchen. His bottle's gas range and his refrigerator and his dishwasher were mint green too. There was a picture painted on the door of the refrigerator. The refrigerator had come that way. It was a picture of a gay 90s couple on a bicycle built for two. 90s couple on a bicycle built for two. Billy looked at that picture now, tried to think something about the couple. Nothing came to him. There didn't seem to be anything to think about those two people. Billy ate a good breakfast from cans. He washed his cup and plate and knife and fork and spoon and saucepan, put them away. Then he did exercises he had learned in the army, straddle jumps, deep knee bends, sit-ups and push-ups. Most Ralphamadorians had no way of knowing Billy's body and face were not beautiful. They supposed that he was a splendid specimen. This had a pleasant effect on Billy, who began to enjoy his body for the first time. He showered after his exercises and trimmed his toenails. He shaved and sprayed deodorant under his arms, while, in a, while a zoo guide uh, on a raised platform outside explained what Billy was doing and why. The guide was lecturing telepathically, simply standing there, sending out thought waves to the crowd. On the platform with him was the little keyboard instrument with which, he, with which he would relay questions to Billy from the crowd. Now the first question came from the speaker on the television set. Are you happy here? About as happy as I was on earth, said Billy Pilgrim, which was true. There were five sexes on Tralfamador each of them performing a step necessary in the creation of a new individual. They looked identical to Billy because their sex differences were all in the fourth dimension. 
One of the biggest moral bombshells handed to Billy by the Travamadorians, incidentally, had to do with sex on Earth. They said their flying saucer crews had identified no fewer than seven sexes on Earth, each essential to reproduction. Again, Billy couldn't possibly imagine what five of those seven sexes had to do with the making of a baby, since they were sexually active only in the fourth dimension. The Tralfamadorians tried to give Billy clues that would help him imagine sex in the invisible dimension. They told him that there could be no earthling babies without male homosexuals. There could be babies without female homosexuals. There couldn't be babies without women over 65 years old. There could be babies without men over 65. There couldn't be babies without other babies who had lived an hour or less after birth, and so on. It was gibberish to Billy. There was a lot that Billy said that was gibberish to the Travamadorians too. They couldn't imagine what time looked like to him. Billy had given up on explaining that. The guide outside had to explain as best he could. The guide invited the crowd to imagine that they were looking across a desert at a mountain range on a day that was twinkling bright and clear. They could look at a peak or a bird or a cloud, at a stone right in front of them or even down into a canyon behind them. But among them was this poor earthling and his head was encased in a steel spear which which he could never take off. There was only one eye hole through which he could look and welded to that eye hole were six feet of pipe. This was only the beginning of Billy's miseries in the metaphor. He was also strapped to a steel lattice which was bolted to a flat car on rails and there was no way he could turn his head or touch the pipe. The far end of the pipe rested on a bipod which was also bolted to the flat car. All Billy could see was a little dot at the end of the pipe. He didn't know. He was on a flat car, didn't even know he was anything peculiar about this situation. The flat car sometimes crept, sometimes went extremely fast, often stopped, went uphill, downhill, around curves, along straightways. Whatever poor Billy saw through the pipe, he had no choice but to say to himself, That's life. Billy expected the Travamadorians to be baffled and alarmed by all the wars and other forms of murder on earth. He expected them to fear that the earthling combination of ferocity, ferocity and spectacular weaponry might eventually destroy part or maybe all of the innocent universe. Science fiction had led him to expect that. But the subject of war never came up until Billy brought it up himself. Somebody in the zoo crowd asked him through the lecturer what the most valuable thing he had learned on Tralfamador was so far, and Billy replied, how the inhabitants of a whole planet can live in peace. As you know, I am from a planet that has been engaged in senseless slaughter since the beginning of the time. 
and myself have seen the bodies of schoolgirls who were boiled alive in a water tower by my own countrymen who were proud of fighting pure evil at the time. This was true. Billy saw the boiled bodies in Dresden. And I have lit my way in a prison at night with candles from the fat of human beings who were butchered by the brothers and fathers of those girls who were boiled. Earthlings must be the terrors of the universe. If other planets aren't now in danger from Earth, they soon will be. So tell me the secret so I can take back to Earth and save us all. Okay, I lost the page. Mm. Okay. So earthlings must be the terrors of the universe. If other planets aren't now in danger from Earth, they soon will be. So tell me the secret so I can take it back to Earth and save us all. How can a planet live at peace? Billy felt that he had spoken soaringly. He was baffled when he saw the trial from Adorans close their little hands on their eyes. He knew from past experience what this meant. He was being stupid. Would, would you mind telling me? He said to the guide, much deflated. What was so stupid about that? We know how the universe ends, said the guide, and Earth has nothing to do with it, except that it gets wiped out too. How? How does the universe end? said Billy. We blow it up, experimenting with new fuels for our flying saucers. A Tralfamadorian test pilot presses a starter button, and then the whole universe disappears. So it goes. If you know this, said Billy, isn't there some way you can prevent it? Can't you keep the pilot from pressing the button? He's always pressed it and he always will. We always let him and we always will let him. The moment is structured that way. So, said Billy gropingly, I suppose that the idea of preventing war on earth is stupid too. Of course. But you do have a peaceful planet here. Today we do. On other days, we have wars as horrible as any you've ever seen or read about. There isn't anything we can do about them, so we simply don't look at them. We ignore them. We spend eternity looking at pleasant moments, like today at the zoo. Isn't this a nice moment? Yes. That's one thing earthlings might learn to do. If they tried hard enough, ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. Hmm, said Billy Pilgrim. Shortly after he went to sleep that night, Billy travelled in time to another moment which was quite nice, his wedding night with the former Valencia Mervo. He had been out of the veterans' hospital for six months. He was all well. He had graduated from the Ilium School of Optometry, third in his class of 47. 
Now he was in bed with Valencia in a delightful studio apartment which was built on the end of a wharf on Cape Town, Massachusetts. Across the water were the lights of Gloucester, were the lights of Gloucester. Billy was on the top of Valencia making love to her. One result of this act would be the birth of Robert Pilgrim, who would become the problem in high school, become a problem in high school, but who would then straighten out as a member of the famous Green Berets. Valencia wasn't a time traveller, but she did have a lively imagination. While Billy was making love to her, she imagined that she was a famous woman in history. She was being Queen Elizabeth I of England, and Billy was supposedly Christopher Columbus. Billy made a noise like a small rusty hinge. He had just emptied his seminal vesicles into Valencia, had contributed his share of the Green Beret. According to the Tralfamadorans, of course, the Green Beret would have seven parents in all. Now he rolled off his huge wife, whose rapt expression did not change when he departed. He lay with the buttons of his spine along the edge of the mattress, folded his hands behind his head. He was rich now. He had been rewarded for marrying a girl nobody in his right mind would have married. His father-in-law had given him a new Buick Roadmaster an all-electric home and had made him manager of his most prosperous office, his Ilium office, where Billy could expect to make at least $30,000 a year. That was good. His father had only been a barber. As his mother said, the pilgrims are coming up in the world. The honeymoon was taking place in the bittersweet mysteries of Indian summer in New England. The lover's apartment had one romantic wall, which was all French to 